Hello and welcome to another episode of the World in Perspective, the International Scholars Podcast on International Affairs. I'm Kevin Vasquez, Editor-in-Chief and host of this podcast. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Joining me from Copenhagen, Denmark, is Davide Broll, uh, the director of ITS's MENA program. Uh, joining us from the very heart of Europe itself, I'm going to get crap for saying that, um, in Brussels, Belgium, is Linda Totova. Uh, she is the director of one half of our Wider Europe program. She directs the Eastern Europe, Turkey, and the Caucasus program. And today we're going to be talking about strategic autonomy, a European common foreign uh, and security policy, and the integration of European defense, or perhaps the lack thereof. But before we get to all of that, how are you guys doing today? Hi, Cameron. Thank you for uh, this invitation to this, very, to this very exciting podcast. Life is good. For being in a lockdown could be worse, I would say. <laughs> yeah, same. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see <laughs> you guys have very different it's like auras around you right now. Like Davide's like chilling at home and then I see like the blue lights of Brussels out the window of Linda's apartment and it's just <laughs> Actually I have just very, very, very different just vibes. actually have a rainbow because the whole Brussels is still living in a mode the International Women's Day. Oh brilliant. Well that's lovely. It's, yeah, I it's think a I major mean, difference from Central and Eastern Europe. I'm I'm gonna tell you that. <laughs> I'm actually in the I, I'm I'm actually in the <laughs> okay. only bunker where it is a apartment internet works, so that's why my environment doesn't look too happy. So. <laughs> hunker hunker down in Copenhagen. Okay. Well um Linda, you're you're stewing in the political pot of Europe, uh in, in Brussels, and you are always in tune with what's going on um, in terms of European foreign policy. So why don't you give our listeners a quick um, quick about, about what strategic autonomy is for those who don't know? I mean, strategic autonomy in itself has many different meanings. Most of us as the EU nerds who actually want to talk about it and want to understand as to what strategic autonomy means in connection to the European Union is that even if we think about it in literal terms and translate it from, from Latin as to like auto and nomos is literally self and a law or, or a rule. So it's about strategic autonomy. It's about being able to act on your own based on the rules that you create for yourself. This does not necessarily mean in connection to the European Union that it wants to act alone or that it even has a preference for acting alone. I mean, at the end of the day, it's been a supporter for multiple other international organizations, international fora, but it's the self-reliance, self-sufficiency of the European Union, especially as we are going to talk about in the defense area. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up in that context, because there's this misconception um, that's very prevalent, even in policy circles, which you mentioned, um, that strategic autonomy is this concept that's inherently about decoupling from NATO or from the United States. And it's not, as you say, it's, it's about being able to engage the world on the, your own terms, right? In, in your playing by your own rule book on the world stage, not that you are going to play by yourself with your own rule book, but having the capacity to act on, on your own to do whatever is necessary to achieve your own ends at that point in time. So currently as as i mean it's pretty obvious europe is extremely reliant especially in defense areas on the united states on the uh, nuclear umbrella that the united states um has and of course under donald trump 
transatlantic relations took an absolute nosedive and there was increased desire to sort of expedite the conversation around strategic autonomy if this was going to continue to be the path that the United States took, especially because without the security guarantee that the United States provides, Europe is kind of in hot water at that point. What are the different, besides besides that misconception, right, what are the different concepts of strategic autonomy? If, if most of Europe wants this, and not all of it does, but if most of Europe wants this, what, what could strategic autonomy then look like in practice? I mean, in case, in case of the strategic autonomy in itself, it became more like a buzzword in Brussels, but that doesn't mean, as I said, that it's actually only connected to defense and security initiatives. We, we get um, diplomats from, Bus- from Brussels saying that there is a need to be um, strategically autonomous in energy security, that the EU needs to be less reliant on the Russian exports of gas and oil. We may talk about the extent as to which this might actually be possible with the building of the Nord Stream 2. But there is also the idea of being strategically autonomous in the area of climate. The thing is that the current high, represent, high representative for foreign affairs, Joseph Borrell, actually he is amongst the proponents of using the concept of, of strategic autonomy not only in defense. So there are different issues well not necessarily issues but different areas where the eu should be and probably also to an extent can be strategically autonomous uh, if i can jump in i like there is a very famous quote in europe that i would like to start with which is europe is an economic giant a political dwarf and a military worm which uh, like uh, it was first stated in the 90s and i think is still very actual today and uh, like trump the Trump era was like a shock for Europe, a shock in which our political union realized that maybe it was time to start working alone. But the real question is like, do we, can we really achieve that? Like, is there really a political union in Europe in order to do so? Because sometimes it looks like that the worst enemy of the European Union are its member states. In terms of, you know, cooperation on any particular issue, of course, there's there's the political to and fro of national politics versus the, the interstate politics. Yeah, I would say in terms of having the same interests, for example, let's think about the last uh, military intervention in which Europe was in, involved, like Libya. It started as a common approach and then we ended up having Italy and France supporting two completely different sides of the same of a conflict. And so how can we have a common strategic uh, policy if we don't even agree between our member states on what our our priorities. So in this sense, I would say that like the worst enemy sometimes of Europe are its member states and its colliding uh, interests. Well, actually, I think that this it's important to mention here that there there is a, is a widespread awareness of the member states. Actually, there are being 27. Well, now 27 used to be 28 up until recently different strategic cultures, which we may explain it as either norms or objectives or or means to achieve certain foreign policy objectives. But the, the point is that even back, the Lisbon Treaty 2009 actually removed the presidency, the rotating pres- presidency from um, the common foreign and security policy and defense policy, precisely because Kissinger once said, who do I call when I call um, Europe? So there, there is 
people are aware that and even people working for the EU institutions that there is an inconsistency and incoherence when it comes to the EU member states themselves. So there have been institutional almost checks and balances, but more like reassurances put in place to ensure that the EU in its foreign policy does not deviate from a certain path. And to what extent that may actually now be going towards the strategically autonomous Europe as whatever that means. I see your point and I totally agree on you, but I still believe that like this works only when member states can achieve a common understanding because as soon as like they don't agree, as we still like have a, a veto system in especially in uh, in security and st- in military operations because like in uh, with the Maastricht Treaty it was established the pillar system in which like the political union was almost we have to see Europe like an organization in, with layers in which from some layers Europe is almost a state like the United States of America almost a federal mm-hmm. system almost in some layers I, I'm I, like don't don't get me wrong in others. We are still like a mere international organizations with where different states can put a veto power on everything. And this sometimes means immobilism, not being able to go forward. And even if with the Lisbon, Lisbon uh, Treaty, they try to to overcome this pillar system in which uh, some some issues could be treated as like common policies and others couldn't. I still think t- like we didn't overcame that and without a without creating a system with a majority we will never be able to like take important strategic decisions for the future but at the same time without a unique strategic culture as you said we will we won't be able to create a system that works for with majority because countries do not understand do not trust each other so it's like it's a circle in which i don't know how we can escape from that in I europe think that, i, I think that we get very quickly to the very center of the discussion that is pretty much ongoing in Brussels ever since we know that there is the unanimity rule when making foreign policy decisions. And that, that leads me to, uh, to kind of bring up, and you mentioned this, you know, without a, a, some kind of system that, that leads to a, a majority by which everybody will comply, even if they disagree on some points, there's, there's a majority and we've agreed to act on, on how the majority works. Linda's work uh, on a, a feature piece that's coming out fairly soon for ITS directly addresses this question. So I, I wanted to kind of throw that to you to talk a, a little bit about what qualified majority voting is, where it's used now in Europe, and uh, a little bit about, you know, the case for, for using qualified majority voting in in more foreign policy for the European Union. Because as you say, Davide, I mean, Europe cannot be treated as a, as a, a, a whole on every issue, even by foreign powers, you know, if I'm, if I'm the Secretary of State of the United States, and I'm trying to engage Europe on something defense related, my first response is not to go to the EU, it's to go to NATO, or to go to individual partners who can and will actually respond within a a certain time frame to, to react. And, and, and that also reinforces the, the, the status quo. Because if, if that's the, the channel that exists, that's the easiest mechanism to operate on. So, Let's talk a little bit about what qualified majority voting is, how the European Union uses it, and, and then what's the case for using that, and then what are the drawbacks? Well, I think it's very important, the thing that David has said, that it's very difficult to talk about the EU, especially as a foreign policy actor, and think of the EU as a whole, as a unitary actor, like 
like a state. It is not. We've got post-Brexit 27 states with different his historical legacies, different security environments, and with them associated geopolitical objectives. The point is that ever since the 1970s and 80s, the foreign policy and security policy was always considered that of high politics and any sort of integration in the area or any sort of giving sovereignty aware, well, away from the national parliaments to Brussels was unthinkable. And then we get to the case of the qualified majority voting because in the end, more than 80% of legislation that actually passes the EU Council is passed using qualified majority voting. That pretty much means that 15, well now, 15 out of 27 me member states must give a green light to the certain legislation at hand or 65% of the EU population. The point is that that does not apply to foreign and security policy because that's too close to the heart of national sovereignty of each of the EU member states, regardless of where they are, and for different reasons. Some may be more inclined to maybe change the voting procedure in CFSPs, some may not be. Um, the case, so the common foreign security policy and the decisions are, as I said, agreed all by unanimity. However, that then also means that um, when deciding on important foreign policy decisions that may be associated with crises or the, so the European security strategy from 2008 talked about the promoting the rank of well-governed countries in the European neighborhood. What we currently have is, is a ring of fire around the European neighborhood. And if we still have the unanimity rule in CFSP, that either means that when passing important foreign policy decisions, everyone must be in favor, which, as I said, is very unlikely due to different security environments, different even um, strategic cultures, if we go to the beginning of our conversation. Not to mention different political climates. Different political climate. Governments change all the time. Look at the climate now. It doesn't even make sense. And or we get the other situation, which is the lowest common denominator, which not only takes a lot of time to actually get to the point when or where member states have an agreement, but it's so it's stripped of everything that might be of a political issue to any of the member states in order for all the 27 to agree to that. So either we are it doesn't have any weight no. in other words it's been watered down to the point where it's it's it it's it's literally just water i mean it's exactly. it, it doesn't mean anything it, to it's anyone. a nice phrase it's a nice declaration and that's about it so either we we get a very very delayed foreign policy or one that doesn't make any difference in the situation that the eu needs it to do not to mention and i, I kind of want to bring this to the attention of listeners as well especially as the EU starts to look uh, more around, you know, other parts of the world to engage as a unitary actor, or, or at least it, it, it's, it's thinking of doing so in terms of strategic autonomy, you know, re relations with China, for example. Um, China has been very wise to strategically invest in, in certain uh, sectors of, uh, key sectors of economies. And that's one of the reasons why in, in an expedited fashion for, for Brussels, they passed a, a an, essentially a national security uh, measure to establish a, a mechanism to weigh the, the national security and, and collective security interests um, that might be 
you know, endangered by certain foreign investment. Uh, so there's a foreign direct investment uh, sort of screening tool now. Um, and that was without saying, you know, this is to protect against, you know, sort of hostile investment from China. It was, it, it, it's principal use is probably to protect there. Uh, this could also be a, a mechanism that, you know, China still uses without, you know, any existing leverage that you might have that might be, you know, overwhelming enough on any one given issue. If your crisis is with China, all you have to do is sway one member state to vote no, and, and then you break unanimity immediately, right? And that, that becomes very easy out of 27 member states to find one where you've got some leverage somewhere to break uh, somebody. It could be political, it could be economic, it could be national security related. Uh, and that, of course, also applies to to Russia and other powers, the United States. Exactly. Even. That's why so, that's yeah. why I think that when people say that it's a, it's amazing and it's incredible that we have continuous sanctions on Russia for the illegal annexation of Crimea well, since 2014, renewed on six months basis. The fact that people say that that's extraordinary, that's an exaggeration, which is the sad part of CFSP. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's extraordinary, and it's it's not extraordinary for, you know, going out there and being a you know bold and amazing. It's extraordinary given the limitations of the current system. Given all of this, and given the desire for greater autonomous uh, engagement, especially on on defense cooperation within Europe, how could we over overcome that with qualified majority voting or some other you know mechanism? Lead us through a couple of the examples. I mean, Davide has done some great work as well, looking at, um, you know, security as uh, collective security in Europe. Uh, there's a, a wonderful article by a colleague of both of ours, Sebastiano Angeli, a couple of years back uh, in ITS, talking about uh, the need for a collective defense union, essentially, in terms of the economy, right? You need a, a collective defense market uh, to to provide that oper you know oper interoperability between different militaries um and you know cut down redundancy but what are a couple of the main political avenues before we get into the the technical details of of defense integration that that might enable greater strategic autonomy uh, autonomy i'm i'm just going to say um, at the beginning that i just think that it's important any time someone talks about the European defense and European defense initiatives, it's important to take a step back and realize that, well, the EU is not a state and we can't judge its European sec global security based on objective that a state would have. If the EU was a state, it would have the second largest GDP in the world, which is an important piece of information if we then talk about the defense aspect of that, because not only that, it, it has the second largest GDP right after the US, it's also the largest donor of developmental aid in the world. So think of this in connection to the fact that on average, the EU member states spend between 1.3 to 1.5% of their GDP on defense. There is such an imbalance between these statistics with pretty much only seven member states meeting the target of the 2% that NATO stated, which is mind-blowing considering the defense initiatives that I'm sure Davide is going to be able to more to talk more about. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, I totally agree on you. And I think it's very important to stress the point that Europe is not a state because this is like too often, both internally and externally, there is a, a tendency to see, to see Europe as a unique 
polit political unity. And this is dangerous as well, because, for example, in some countries, by some politicians, this is also used as an internal strategy to gather power. Like Europe is not acting, Europe is not doing something on migration, but maybe Europe doesn't even have the the, the possibility, the legal um, room for doing that. For example, a typical, a very typical example that I could do on that is Salvini in Italy. For that, for who doesn't know, Salvini is a far right politician in Italy who passed from the four percent of the consensus the, of the of consensus in Italy to like 38 in less than five years just talking about migration and his main argument was that Europe was not helping Italy on migration with the migration crisis we had in 2014 but actually it was the, the party of Salvini at the European Parliament blocking the reform to make a more even migration system in Europe so this should be acknowledged by people that Europe, like, is in many ways, as you said, is extremely strong, like, uh, economically, it's the biggest, is the most important founder in terms of uh, humanitarian action. But on the other hand, in many other uh, contests, it, it cannot move. And this make, an uh, this bring us to immobilism, to a situation in which, like, Europe is blamed for inaction, but Europe is also unable to act. It's it's also it's also important that you mention that because even if we even if we acknowledge for the sake of this argument that, that the EU has the capabilities, so the Commission's joint um, communication back in two thousand thirteen was that EU has all the capacity, all the resources to be strategic in its foreign policy. So even if we say for the sake of this argument that the EU has the capabilities, then we have a long shopping list of obstacles that are either institutional or political that actually are in reality preventing the EU from probably achieving its full potential that it as well based on its GDP, well, aggregate GDP of all the EU member states apparently has. Yes, I would say that Europe is right now at a turning point. Like after years of like advancing a political project, we are at a moment in which either we go further and it means a lot of political courage by especially the countries that are part of the European Union, either we go back. Because if we stay in this kind of vacuum in which like we have, uh, for example, an European Central Bank, but then each country has its fiscal policy. We have like uh, a European Treaty on Migration, but then each country does whatever it wants on migration. And so it creates like too many setbacks. So Europe is really, I think, at an historical turning point. And it couldn't be the worst moment to be at this point, because after years of success, because Europe, we should always remember that if there is no war since 70 years in Europe, and if there has been economic prosperity, it's mainly, thank you, thanks to the European Union. But now it's very easy to, to attack the European Union for so many issues, also with the vaccines. Like we can, I think, all agree that on vaccines, Europe didn't act properly. Like it's crazy to think that Great Britain, that like after Brexit should show the world why Brexit was dangerous in like such a, deci a decisive matter as uh, vaccination uh, is overcoming all the other countries in Europe. So like, it's also a very difficult moment to go forward, but it's also the most important moment to go forward because if things are not working, if we are back with vaccines, like to respect to a country such as England is exactly because of this, because we don't have the means 
to be to act like a country in situations in which you need to act like a country. I would probably give this what you just said. I agree on most of the points of what you just said, but I would probably add that I would divide it into more maybe vertical and horizontal incoherence in the EU, which especially impacts its foreign policy. So if we think about the horizontal, you may think about the institutions when when it comes to the European External Action Service and um, PESCO and the European Defense Agency. So even, even PESCO is pretty much created from, well, it's, Secretariat is composed of diplomats and members of the European External Action Service and also the European Defense Agency. So there are multiple So we need to, just for our listeners, what is PESCO for those who are not the Euro, the Europhiles and European analysts in, in the, uh, <laughs> among our <laughs> listeners, right? For all the, for all the non-EU wonks. PESCO, PESCO is the permanent structured cooperation it was it came into existence and well into force 2016-2017 back under the high representative um, Federica Mogherini and it was the whole period was four years of multiple defense initiatives and PESCO pretty much wants to ensure the that the joint exercise and, and evolution of military and defense projects within individual member states with the under the umbrella of working towards one goal it's being helped with by the european defense agency um which is pretty much securing more the procurement and technology and all the more nitty-gritty aspects of the defense. We have multiple other concerning the European Defense Fund, which pretty much is ensuring the consistent financing of European defense within individual member states. The point is that with this horizontal coherence or incoherence, we have multiple EU institutions with each institution wanting to have a say in foreign policy, defense initiative, anything that is to leave Brussels and go the way out. When it, and then what, what you actually mentioned, then we've got the vertical incoherence, which is that when it comes to foreign and security policy, the decisions taken in Brussels are not mandatory. The member states at the end of the day exactly. can do whatever they want. There's this very, very famous example. Back in 2011, Egypt, there, um, the protest started. EU was, at that point, the high representative for foreign affairs was Cathy Ashton. And there was an agreement that probably the EU, as a big union, 28 states at that point, should probably have a say as to what is happening in the Middle East, Egypt, massive protests, people dying. And so Cathy Ashton got on a plane and wanted to say something a long speech as to how the EU is going to help and how it's going to be involved as a major actor on the international stage, or at that point, maybe a wannabe actor. And um, so she got to Egypt just to see the German uh, foreign affairs minister, French foreign affairs minister, and the British foreign affairs minister. And they pretty much said something along the lines, well, actually, we have our own national interests here. So can you please just peg yourself and go back? So the point is that regardless of what the EU does, even the idea of having a high representative for foreign policy who chairs um, 
um, Foreign Affairs Council is the head of European External Action Service, is simultaneously vice president of the commission. It's a heavy job. And it was actually created to make EU's foreign policy, especially if the objective at the end of a tunnel is to make it more strategically aut autonomous, more consistent and coherent. But it all falls down if member states just decide not to comply with, its, the, with the decisions, foreign policy decisions that come from Brussels. Yeah, that's a main issue. I think there's, there's even another layer, neither, you know, both perhaps intersecting both the vertical challenges and horizontal challenges that, that you both brought up there. And that is, of course, um, that of, of capability, right? You mentioned that there's multiple different in initiatives, right? But we also have to consider that there's also completely external commitments, which nation states take on their own outside of Europe at all, right? Outside of, of Europe, as in the European Union. So NATO, for example, people people think about talking about NATO or PESCO. And it needs to be mentioned that not all NATO members are members of the European Union. Of course, the biggest example there is the United States next to Canada and Turkey. Um, and then, of course, not all PESCO members are NATO members either. I believe Austria is a member of PESCO and, and the EU, but not of NATO. And then you have Norway, for example, as a member of NATO, but not of the EU. And so you've got this complex... I mean, Austria Austria is a very specific example because Austria is a neutral. Well, yes, but I mean, this is, this is again, the challenge that you, that you have in terms of... That, I mean, that, that, that illustrates the point, right? You have not just competing internal institutions that are trying to, to have a say instead of an integrated institution that makes the decisions collectively and decisively in one place... But you have national institutions, you have other international institutions, you have multiple iterations in different, you know, sort of avenues of, uh, of European defense and, and foreign policy that are making uh, or attempting to, to, you know, weigh in on, on decisions that the EU takes that are ultimately not even mandatory at the end of the day, right? So none of this is working. So if we want, well, none of it is working as intended. Um, and so if you want to have a more integrated security policy. Obviously, there needs to be that consensus that we've talked about from the beginning. And so the attempt to, to create some sort of mechanism by which you can arrive at a, a cooperative majority, right? Um, a qualified majority, as uh, Linda's feature discusses, is, is almost a prerequisite to acting at all, right? And so I think this is the biggest stumbling block and the reason why, you know, We've been talking about strategic autonomy now for five years, essentially. Um, I wrote a piece back in, you know, like 2018 that was talking about strategic autonomy as as a potential format for grand strategy for the European Union. And I think that's where the conversation slowly started to lead more. But again, there's no creating one until we can agree on one, what that looks like, what institutions are involved, what is part of the, the collective decision making, you know, what fields of policy um, and then what isn't? And then on top of that, who gets to who who where is the final say made? And is it mandatory? <laughs> and uh, you know who who gets veto power if anybody does, right? And so I think that the the biggest stumbling block here, as as Davide says, right, is is this challenge of of coming to um, any kind of consensus wherever in in any issue. But this also. It's like one on so many issues. You, as you mentioned, Davide, Europe is like one step in the doorway and then one step out, right? They have one foot in the door to say, okay, we're we've got this union on monetary policy and we have a, a collective market, but we don't have a collective fiscal policy, and so you have this constant challenge where 
you know, export heavy economies like Germany, you know, export obviously quite naturally to a lot of import heavy economies like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Ireland. And then those rack up lots of debt as a result because there's no there's no barriers to trade as intended, right? But then there's no rebalancing at the end of that. And I think there's also a kind of overflow that's happening in, in a similar way in defense. Not only that, but there's a lot of redundancy. This isn't talked about as much outside of the, the very nitty gritty policy circles, but there's tons of redundancy with just in terms of institutional capacity um, of having all of these different sep- separate militaries then quote unquote integrating in multiple different fora all at the same time you're creating the same paperwork and the same uh you know policy channels multiple times over where having just one entity would would simplify measures and you could you could probably spend less on defense than you are now and achieve the same result that you have now with a more integrated system so that the conversation around making sure that you know europe has a two percent defense for every country you know at least this in nato is one that's i think overstated right that would be good two percent and integrated would be wonderful right and that's one of the reasons why you have you know great experts on this topic like max bergman you know writing that the united states you know the biden administration should support this conversation and encourage a, a more collective action from Europe. That's that's the military ally the Euro- that the United States needs. I believe that's basically the title of of his piece. But I want to hear from you guys. Like, let's look. Let's let's forget all of the roadblocks right now for a second. They're large as life, but let's let's ignore them for a moment and imagine here a Europe that is does have that integrated capacity, right? What does it look like once that that's there? What is what is Europe capable is, of doing at that stage? The th- the thing is, EU created these rapid response groups called the EU battle groups, mm-hmm. which are supposed to be, which are supposed to consist of um, one thousand five hundred troops, supposed to be deployable within the fifteen days. They are fully operational since two thousand seven. They have never been used. So even so, they there there is the capacity. So as I said, like for the, for the sake of the argument, we may argue that the EU has the capacity, has the tools, has the battle groups, everything created in place. It's the willingness of the member states and the financing. Right, and I want you to. I know it's difficult, especially in this field, right? But imagine, imagine there's no political roadblock. Imagine the willingness is there. Yeah, exactly. What is Europe then capable of? Like, imagine the the end. What's the end result we're really trying to achieve here? And then what what is now possible once you arrive at that point? I think that needs to be stated yeah. as well. I would say that in that case, Europe could do basically the same is doing in economic terms. So become a really important union in the world, which countries and the continents look at with, uh, you know, respect and fear and intention to deal with. So we could be, we could play a major role in the Middle East, for example, uh, in uh, in trying to bring peacekeeping uh, missions. We could uh, have a position against, for example, China in regards of what is happening uh, to Hong Kong that will be strong enough to really make a difference because Europe, as like Linda before rightfully remembered, is the first economic uh, giant in the world. So it has a power, also diplomatically, that is massive. But it's then is every time it just 
crumbled in different countries, uh, nobody really see Europe as something to fear of, but just something to convince some countries inside to perceive its interest. For example, when China wanted to build the Silk Road, they contacted Italy. They didn't call Bruxelles because they knew they were, they were supposed to pass from Bruxelles. So I think there is a very uh, nice quote from uh, Kissinger that I like to use in these cases because Kissinger 30 years ago said, but who do I call if I need to call Europe? This was, of course, a provocative sentence, but because it's true, 30 years later, we can still say the same. Like if, for example, now Biden wanted to have a common strategy in military terms, he wouldn't call definitely somebody in Bruxelles, but he would go for Germany, for France, or probably they will try to do that like inside NATO, even if also NATO itself is trying to be overcome by, uh, by countries in order to act differently. Because also inside NATO right now, divisions are too high. Let's think, let's think about the fact that Turkey is in NATO and right now Europe has a very hostile policy towards Turkey. So things could be like, great things could be done if Europe would be a, milita a, a, a military unit. But like, I think we are just talking about an utopia right now because it's not something that is gonna of course. happen in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that, but that's one of the points I mean, also for our listeners, I mean, you'll, you, you know, from listening to a couple of these podcasts by now, that the one of the key points of, of, of ITS is to look beyond the, the moment, the momentary challenge, right, beyond this year, beyond four years from now, this term, this administration, this chancellor, this prime minister, um, and say, what, what's really possible? And then why do we want to, like, what's the end goal? What's the root problem here? What's the, the ideal solution to that? And then what's possible once once we achieve that, right? Because at the end of the day, that's those are the things that matter to the, the question you're trying to solve right now, right? Like achieving strategic autonomy is great if, if we just take, you know, okay, we want to do this, but why? What What is the, the gain at the end of the road? And that's something I want to highlight because I feel like that is often left out of the conversation as well. Like, it, yeah, sure, Europe has the capacity to act on its on its own merits. That's the, the end line there, but that's usually all it gets, right? What is now possible in terms of dealing with the United States on trade or what is possible with dealing with China when it comes to, you know, human rights concerns over Uyghurs or Hong Kong or uh, engaging positively with the African Union to develop, you know, uh, economic uh, uh, lines, you know, channels to uh, a nascent, uh, you know, economic block, essentially, uh, and what could p potentially prove to be one of the most potent in the world next to the European Union, right? These are huge, important long-term questions that are completely ignored because we're even in the debate about being bogged down in in debate, we're debating, right? Like, it's just this spiral of uh, of differing positions, but we need to look at what's what's at the end of the tunnels that we're considering going down, right? Interestingly enough, I would probably make a couple of points here. I think that despite seeing all the numbers, I'm still relatively pessimistic when it comes to integration and defense. I think that the the concept of um, principled pragmatism that's from the EU global strategy from 2016, it actually says that the EU may as well keep its idealist aspirations as to what it wants to be in the world on the international stage, but it also needs to make realist assessments as to what is achievable. So, for example, that might include that might include, OK, so maybe there should be some hard power capability 
to be used in the Benson Ring of Fire around the European Union, but that probably there is no point in sending a, a battle group to Southeast Asia and using hard power capacity there. So the EU, even historically, when we look at the 90s, the EU moved from, from point A to point B by being helpless when it was the wars in Yugoslavia, the whole of 90s. And the US was like, okay, this is your area, deal with it. And the EU couldn't. That's why we have that breaking point up until St. Malo Agreement in 1998, UK was the country, in, as an Atlanticist country, was again integrating any sort of defense into the structures of the European Union. Then in 1998, there was a St. Malo Agreement between France and, and the UK, where it said that, oh, actually, probably the EU should have some capability backed by credible military forces. So the so historically, we know that the EU gets from one point, from one side of the street to the other when it's faced with a challenge, that it can't cope with the already existing capabilities, whether it is the defense, whether it is economics, development, anything. I, I think I agree with you that the Europe doesn't usually move decisively and take the big steps until it's really, you know, looking down sort of the barrel of the gun, if you will, um, on any given issue, right? Um, there's a few major exceptions to that, especially in terms of, you know, economics, where that's that's inherently proactive. But when it comes to, like, political and military, you know, pushes... Usually Europe doesn't act until it, it, it must act. And I think the, the, the challenge here is that strategic autonomy is in this va- sort of vacuum of, of challenge where it's, it's mostly missed opportunities that, that we're looking at. Missed opportunities to engage on you know, this question of human rights or missed opportunities to counter some you know, action from some other large power. And then there's ensuing division over what position to take and different countries taking different sides. You could take the example that that Davide gave with Libya. So I think really the, the challenge here is that it's missed opportunity. So there's no deadline, there's no impetus um, specifically. And that's one of the reasons why Europe is, is reluctant to make a decision because it's waiting till the last minute. And I think that's the biggest problem here. So I think that's, again, one of the reasons why it's important to look at what are the missed opportunities? What could Europe be doing? when I say I, I want us to look at the end of the road as well, like what, what is down, what is the, the end result? I'm not saying that I think that, you know, Europe is pot, you know, could potentially achieve strategic autonomy this year, right? Pragmatically, realistically, that's, that's not going to happen this year, next year, or maybe in four years even, right? But the conversation will continue to be ongoing. And it's important to keep our perspective. Again, this is the world in perspective podcast, right? to keep our perspective on where, where we're headed and why we're headed there and what's possible once we, we get there. So I know that runs counter to, to the natural inclination of most you know, sort of uh, analysts to think about what, you know, regardless of all of the things you're analyzing, what's, what's the end result you, you could possibly achieve. But I just want to, Sorry, I just want to I just want to jump in with the I just thought of a quote. Um, so the the former UK ambassador to the US once said the sentence that a pigs will fly yeah. first, 
before the EU manages to create its its own defense. And I'm so curious how that's going to be post-Brexit, post-Angela Merkel. You know, it's funny you should mention that, that we're having this conversation and I'm hosting this, this, this talk because I just thought of the Cincinnati has a flying pig marathon. It's literally called the flying pig <laughs> marathon. And we have statues what? that are commemorated each year at the end of the, the marathon. They're put throughout the city. So um, perhaps pigs will fly. And that, that leads well to, towards the end of this podcast. We've talked about a lot of things. <laughs> But uh, before we close out, would uh, Davide, why don't you take us a little bit through um, the uh, sort of collective stance of the European Union on migration or the, the lack of uh, collective action and the challenges that exist there uh, before we close out here? Yeah, jumping on that, I think migration is like the, the perfect topic for explaining all the issues right now ongoing in the European Union, because like forced migration like concerns so many different layers within the EU. And uh, I would say that before the COVID outbreak, it was probably the most concerning and divisive problem within the Union. Like, and with problem, I don't mean an actual problem, like an actual threat, like when you have a country military attacking you, but a sort of scapegoat, a sort of created problem, which like uh, is also known, I think there was a securitization move in Europe towards migration, which for maybe those who mm. are not the, yeah. from the security studies sector, securitization put it very like in a very easy way because otherwise it's also a complex theory. It's just the belief that if you put too much coverage and attention to a topic, especially by me, by media or by some politicians, that topic will uh, bec- will become perceived as the main threat, even if maybe it's not. This is saying, for example, that in Italy, in Europe, we have right now thousands of issues. Like we need to understand if we if, if we keep want to stay under the U.S. umbrella, as you come before you were saying. If we need to understand our relationship with China, we need to understand if we want to bring further our economic unity if you want to have a different policy in order to not create the suffering that was created in 2010 because of the inability of the European uh, Union to have a common strategy in, uh, in, in response to the economic crisis. Yet, we, still, we are still talking about migration. And why? Because basically in, uh, in Europe, we are relying on a system which is from the 90s, which is called the Dublin system which has a major problem. The fourth country of arrival of uh, asylum seekers must take care of the whole process. Like, and uh, this wasn't a problem in the 90s where the treaty was created with a clear logic. It was the end of the Cold War and so there was the purpose of letting some people entering in Europe. And in that case, the number, in, in that situation, the numbers were so like, small that this system could work 20 years later this is not the same like now we have like massive flows from uh, northern africa middle east coming to europe and having the first country of arrival being in charge of the whole process of it uh, means uh, like creating an unfair system and even that that is un- that is known at the european union level every country knows that Still, they can't find a political solution to this treaty to overcome that. Creating a quota system, a fair quota system for dividing the migrants right now present, sorry, the migrants, the asylum seekers right now present in the European soul would, be, would cost 
really nothing in uh, in technical terms to most of the countries. They would even there would be like a difference in terms of you know like jobs, employment, or stuff. But yet it's such a political divisive topic that they are not able to to find an agreement, and they probably won't in the next years. Even if it would be so easy, and doing that would ease the life of so many people. Right now, most of people entering from Italy or from Greece, as the as these people know, if they are stopped, they have to stay in that country. They have to apply for staying in that country. Most of people try to arrive illegally to Europe. They try to cross Italy or Greece or all all the Balkan route illegally, so they can be they can arrive to countries such as Germany or Northern Europe, which are normally the country they aim to arrive. And once they are there they can apply and once they are there nobody can tell them okay you go back to italy even though sometimes just a ticket a train ticket is enough to take these people and send them back and i think this is i i think it's extremely clear how this system is not only ineffective for the for the european union because it's also dangerous to to bring to push so many people thousands of people to try in legal ways to enter in our union but at the same time the political division is so high that there is no solution right now. And this is the same for the military. Like we, we can, I think, translate this, this thing also in the security and, and foreign policy we have. It would be so much easier to have a common idea of Europe, to have a common strategy. We, we will be so much stronger and problem will be so much, so much more takeable. But at the same time, there is a problem of trust among European countries. And as long as there, that trust won't be built or rebuilt, if it was, it won't be possible to, to overcome the even easiest problem that Europe right now is facing. Sorry if I went so long, but for me, migration is a very touching argument. So, yeah. We'll definitely be continuing to address this topic. I think that um, just sort of as a closing closing round, um, we should kind of go through and talk about what's, what we can expect next in terms of developments um, or, or summits. Like what, what are key things that you will be watching? with regards to collective uh, migration activity or collective defense or collective foreign policy. Um, and I know that Linda's like probably got like five things on her you know, <laughs> conferences and seminars. Yeah. She's going to be attending like in the next five minutes, but yes, what are the more. major, major stakes? Well, I would probably, I mean, I would summarize in a couple of words, our discussion that we just had. And that is that the EU global strategy talks that, well, says that the EU needs to be able to predict the unpredictability. We have just in under an hour established that um, the EU can predict the unpredictability, but it can't act on it. It's too reactionary to be able to be proactive and deal with the unpredictability in its near neighborhood, let alone beyond. In terms of what I would personally watch out for, there is going to be a European Council Summit next week. What we already know that is going to be discussed is um, the Russian Federation, and we are probably going to get a glimpse at the um, five guiding principles that are back from 2016, since, well, impacted by the recent dealings and the court case of Alexei Navalny and even the suppression of the protesters. So that is one thing that I would definitely watch out for because there are multiple issues, values-based, interest-based dialogues happening between the EU and Russia, between Brussels and Moscow. And I would definitely watch out for that as to how it's also going to impact how the EU acts strategically or not 
in its foreign policy towards Russia. On the other hand, we know that we've got a new pact on migration that, again, probably David knows more about, proposed by the Commission back in September 2020. And based on the conference of foreign and home affairs ministers that was on Monday this week, we know that um, the high representative Joseph Borrell hinted at a possibility that they may propose to renew a pact of, on migration with Turkey back from, again, 2016. So there, there is a lot of unpredictability that I'm very curious to see as to how the EU is going to respond to that. One thing I think that everybody should have a very keen eye on at the moment is what's happening in Bosnia, for example. Like, I think it's ridiculous that we have 3,000 refugee seekers in Bosnia dying from cold, and this is ongoing since the end of November, and nobody has done anything to change the situation. And like, again, redistributing 2,000 people in a population of 50 million of people, as it is the European Union, you can already imagine with your mind, it will not even be perceived. But again, they are not able to do so. And Croatia, Bosnia, let's be clear, Bosnia is not a, an European country. So I'm not saying that European, the European Union should intervene directly on Bosnia. But these people are now stuck at the border with Croatia and they are dying and there are like reports, cases of people of uh, like police brutality against these people. They are asking them to go back. Like people are dying in the cold and uh, still Croatia is an European member country, but still there are only declarations because Europe at the moment is very good in making declarations sometimes as a way to, to clean, to clean, I would say also the consciousness because they know this shouldn't happen. But at the same time, they don't have the political means to, to intervene because countries right now are focused on vaccines or COVID. And uh, so that's something I will look at how Europe will react to this crisis, because I think this will be the final situation, the final drop in which Europe could, uh, could lose its face as a promoter of human rights, as a safeguarder of human rights. So that's something I would really follow closely. Absolutely. So we'll definitely be taking a look at uh, European Common Foreign and Security Policy again on this podcast. I want to thank you both for joining uh, me today at the late hour that it is in, uh, in Brussels and Copenhagen right now. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you, you've made it all the way to the end and you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're finding this podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the INTL Scholar and you can follow this podcast specifically at TWI Perspective. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Um, and if you are interested in uh, following more content, you can also become a Patreon member um, and get some exclusive uh, content, including uh, some very exciting stuff we're, we're preparing for, uh, for summer. We're going to come up with our first quarterly in the second quarter of this year. Um, but for now, from myself in Cincinnati, Ohio, from Davide in Copenhagen, and from Linda in the very heart of Europe itself in Brussels, it's goodbye.